here we are yo 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 what's the show oh man yo 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 what's the show it's a very 80s rap you know i have thought for years that i could have a life in rap music you're already a hip-hop legend in our community in the early 1990s uh, some of you may be familiar with maestro fresh west let your back west west not west I said Wes. Sound like you said West. You don't get to tell me what I say or don't say. You should be Maestro Fresh West. That is where I was going. And we had a legal battle and I lost and I just <laughs> threw in my cummerbund and that was it. I gave up my rap career. What was his thing? Was it Funky Cold Medina? No, it was Let Your Backbone Slide and Drop the Needle were the two big hits off that first album. Oh, also the very first concert I ever went to. Was Maestro Fresh West? Yeah, at the Gloucester Fair, which was a, essentially a small like community fair. Yeah, it's like a yeah, it was kind of a, a mix between maybe like an exhibition size fair and a country fair. Yeah, it was kind of a halfway meeting point. Yeah, you probably would have gone to that because you lived in that end of the city. Yeah, well, when I first moved here, oh, this is an awful story. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. When I first moved here. Uh, Okay, there was a dance contest, an elimination dance contest. <laughs> and you were in it? No, it was everybody. It was at the high school dance at my school. Um, and everybody went on to the dance floor and then they would tell you to leave. Okay. And then the couple that was left would be would win. Okay. And the judge was a local um, disc jockey, like from a radio station. Okay. And I remember the song they were playing was by ELO, Electric Light Orchestra. Which I one? don't remember I don't remember which one. I think it was Don't Bring Me Down. But anyway, and me and my girlfriend at the time won. We won. And wow. we won tickets to the Gloucester Fair. So okay. we went to the Gloucester Fair with our VIP passes and it was like Can a, I just back up for a second? You won this and what did you have to do? Like you just danced better. Yeah. What kind of dance moves were you using at that? Well, this was era? the 70s, right? So this was disco. It was still disco. And oh, okay. I, I was a good disco dancer. I loved disco. Like I still do. What? Were you like Travolta? No, that's more choreographed disco. I just, you know, I, I was good at disco. So like cares? Soul Whatever. Train sort of moves? Oh my, no, 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 not Soul Train. Soul Train's like funky. I could never be that good. Anyway, whatever. I was like 15. Okay. But, you know, boys at 15, most of them are too embarrassed to dance. So if you just go on the dance floor and do the smallest effort, you'll win. Yeah. Anyway, that's not the point of the story. <laughs> I love that you just want to, like, arrow in on the dancing part. Well, I find that fascinating. Well, it was not. Trust me. Okay. So we went to the Gloucester Fair, and we went on the zipper, uh, which I loved back then. I can't go on it now. It would kill me. But I went on the zipper, which was my favorite ride, with Karen, and mm -hmm. we were about... 30 seconds through the ride and someone barfed and they barfed in such a way that where our car was situated the barf hit us square in the face yeah and just so people because not everyone will be familiar with the zipper yeah everybody will it's a north american phenomenon yeah, everyone not knows. Our, a big chunk of our listeners are from europe look at and oceana well, if you don't have a zipper in your country, then that's half your problem you're not, right you're, there. You're not civilized. Anyway, we got barfed on and it hit me in the side of the head, but it hit Karen right in the front of her head, in her face, and her mouth was open. Oh, no. <laughs> 
it was awful. And it, it was serious because it got in her eyes and her eyes turned red and they were burning. It was in her mouth and she, all she could do was just cry and scream. And so they took her to the emergency paramedic tent that they all have at carnivals and they tried to flush her eyes. Anyway, was they brought carny, her to, Was it a carny running? That, um, no, no, it was local paramedics. They brought her to the hospital. Wouldn't that have been great if it had been a carny? Doing no, it. it wouldn't have. She'd end up pregnant. Okay, there. Uh, all right. Uh, you got to throw this ball in this basket. And if you can do that, uh, sweetie, uh, you get a Band-Aid. And you won't lose your vision. Yeah, she went to the hospital. I was okay because it was just down the back of my neck oh. and it hit me in my head. But this is the best story. And this sort of encapsulates my mother. So I call my mother to come and pick me up and I tell her what happened. So she comes and picks me up in our big, giant, ostentatious 70s car. And she's lined the entire back seat of the car with garbage bags. And then when we get home, there are garbage bags all the way up the stairs leading to the shower. Wow. Yeah, so I wouldn't get vomit on anything, any of our beautiful things. Um, I have a question for you. That uh, That's horrible. Can I ask a question? Did she cease to be your girlfriend after that? Um, No, but okay. she was more of a girlfriend anyway. We never really, nothing ever happened. It wasn't a romantic uh, couple. Not in any way, shape, or form. Okay. No, uh, okay. not at not at that age. No, we just it was just boys and well, girls. How old were you? Like 14, 15. I just moved to Canada. Yeah, so it's fourteen had a, or fifteen. A, a, a Massachusetts drawl? No, never did. Not not from where I'm from. I'm Riley from Boston. That's like a Southie. Not everybody from Massachusetts talks like that. I like to think they all do. And I came from a Jewish community that was primarily Jewish people, and they did not talk like that at all. Well, I, you've uh, burst my bubble. No, well, you know. Different accents, man. I got to tell you something too. It's, I'll, I'm just going to talk. It's, I'm not. You're going to have to listen to me the entire episode because I've got so much to tell you. But oh god. Okay, I love a good ghost story, right? You do too. I don't think so. <laughs> you're such a jerk. <laughs> it's a good improv, Dan. <laughs> Look over there. Is that a bird flying? No. <laughs> I. Uh, did you watch Bly Manor, The Haunting of Bly Manor? No, not yet. Oh my God, there is in it, and you'll know when you see it. So we won't talk about it now. I want you to watch it, and then we're going to talk about it. The best ghost origin story I've ever seen, ever. Like, and this tops like my favorite ghost movies, like Ghost Story or The Changeling, any of the greats, Poltergeist. This origin story is one whole entire episode, and it is the best ghost origin story I have ever seen. Is this the show that you mentioned a few weeks ago? that you said was incredible, like one of the best things you've seen recently? Or is this the one that's sort of like a, a spinoff of The Haunting of Hill House? Column number two. It's the. Um, it's not a spinoff. Those uh, show producers are going to take a famous ghost story and every oh. season, it's like Fargo. You oh. know how far, it's like Fargo. So every season will be a different. So this is The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. The first oh, one was The yes, Haunting of... that's right. You had mentioned that. Yeah. Because The Haunting of Hill House, that, I knew that book. It's Shirley Jackson. Yeah. Everybody knows that mm-hmm. book, right? It's been done as movies a couple of times. Mm-hmm. The worst being that awful one with Liam Neeson from the 90s, mm-hmm. which we must we must all try to forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. So that's great. I, I'm I'm so excited to watch. It is on my list. And yeah, and I it's will. worth it for just that episode. It was that good. Wow. Okay, cool. So how are you? I'm good. Uh, we are coming in on the uh, Christmas season. No, are we and, ever. And uh, that is always uh, exciting. I like that. Well, you have kids, right? So you get that energy. Yeah. And uh, building up the mythology and the, uh, uh, you know, having that magic in the house is pretty, pretty special. 
And I, but I love even you know what? Even before kids, I love Christmas music. I do too. No, I do too. Mm -hmm. Can I tell you what I did this week? You'll love this. I think. I think. So a friend of mine sent me a link, and there's um, the National Archives in the United States that archive audio stuff. Archived all of the background music used in Kmart's. It has so all the announcements like attention. There's a blah blah blah. Anyway, on there are seven of the Muzak Christmas albums that they would play, and they're long, thirty minute mixes of classic Christmas hits done instrumentally. And I loved them and I downloaded and saved them all. And I'm I'm so excited. They're like Kmart Christmas music. That's so cool. What's your favorite Christmas special? Oh my God. Rudolph, hands down. Hands down. Not Charlie Brown because it's too depressing. Mm Mm-hmm. I liked Charlie Brown. I would have, yeah, I think Rudolph for me as a kid might have been the one that I got most excited at. And I would also, uh, the Grinch for me was, would have been up there. The Boris Karloff, the, the original. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And what, what about Christmas movie? Uh, I'll tell you what, my favorite Christmas movie is also my favorite movie period. Oh, I have to guess. Yeah. My favorite Christmas movie is also your favorite. Well, it's not Big Trouble in Little China because that's not a Christmas. Oh, I know what it is. It's Die Hard. It's Die Hard. No, we talked about this before. I agree with people that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. I thought so you, I, But I thought you would just throw, okay, let me think. No, um, no, for real. It's my favorite movie. And I think if you know me well Holiday enough, Inn? Think, no. White Good. Christmas? No, nope. but what you're in the right era. I'm in the right era. Uh, Miracle on 34th? No. Which I saw again last year and realized, what a great movie. Okay. Um, oh, oh, I know. Duh. Uh, what is that called? Uh, the the George, George, exactly. the Angels. It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, yes. It's well, always that pebbles. one. I'll tell you what, Mr. Potter. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's sweet. It, I, I, I was able to connect with that film at a young age. There were many aspects of Jimmy Stewart's character that I felt I saw in my dad. Oh, really? Yeah. And we went through a, a period where we had some rough stuff happen financially and and to no fault of my father like you know or, or my mom like it was uh tough so that couple uh, reminded me of my parents and i always felt like i was zuzu who's zuzu the little girl his oh. girl that has zuzu's pedals and he has a high fever and then he screams at her teacher and the teacher's husband punches him out in oh. um, is it mel's is it mel's the diner no it becomes mel's the the bar the tavern Anyway, I love that movie. The, the Christmas story is actually only, like, it's a very small part of it. But, it, I mean, it is a Christmas movie, but that's my favorite. That's my favorite movie of all time. I've watched that movie, I'm going to say, 50 times. I, it's a beautiful movie. It is, be- it is beautifully done. And I like it, the cheesiness of the angels. It's so yep. cute. And I love it that it has such a good heart. It's an innocent film. It's, it's an innocent film. Its intentions are nothing but pure. Yes. Mine is... Um, a movie done a little earlier than that, I believe, but a lovely film that a lot of people haven't seen uh, called The Bishop's Wife. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, the Bishop's Wife is mine because I love Cary Grant playing the angel and I just love the mood of it. You know what's a movie I really don't like that much and everyone I know loves it, but I think it's a generational thing. I'm just okay with it. I think it, the film has a lot of flaws is that it's a Christmas story. With the leg lamp and all that. I think there are some very, very, very funny moments. Me but too. But as a full movie, I agree with you. Yeah, it's it's got too many too many things in it that I find a little bit like, oh, yeah, whatever. I, I like it. Yeah, me too. It, I wouldn't say it's one of my top 
10 favorites. You know which one I do I do love too, though, is uh, is Christmas Vacation. Oh, see, no, not for me. I don't like anything funny. Love that movie with the old people and Randy Quaid before he went full-blown insane. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Whoa. Mm-hmm. We could do but, a whole weird on him. Yes, we could. We're 14 minutes into it, and we haven't even touched on my topic. Yeah, we should probably get going, eh? I'll probably edit some of that out to help us. Like um, when you yell at me for not being close enough to my mic. Oh, yeah, that definitely. It's like working in a slave shop with you. Well, it is. Next thing, I'm going to have you making shirts. Dan, you were... (laughs) The squint on your face was hilarious. Um, It's that giant mug, and I have got a good story for you this week. When I was writing this and found it, I thought of you because you love history so much, and I thought, oh, this is going to make Dan happy because it takes place in World War I. Oh, great. Dan, I'm going to tell you a story about a haunted submarine. Ooh. Right? Oh, I will like this. I know. It's the haunting of U-Boat 65. Cool. Have you ever heard of this? No. Me neither. And you know what? One of the things I love about doing this show is when I research these, I I learn. Right. I learn. I learned something. I thought what you were going to say is sometimes you go in with a show idea and you start researching and then you find something else off on the side, and then that becomes your show. No, that happens, but that's not what I was going to say. This is the story of U-Boat 65. Now, the reason I said I liked learning, because I don't know that much about war. I don't enjoy war. Uh, To me, it's a detestable subject, just because of I find that we're just not learning anything as a society. So I don't like to read about, hear about war. It upsets me. But I learned about war from this, a few interesting things about it that I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got to go into the Wayback Machine to World War One. So the opening of the 1900s, early 1900s. So I didn't know this, but the Allied nations were more into traditional styles of warfare in World War One. There, they were still into honorable ways of fighting. They did. They believed they could, you know, that to do it on the field, to do it honorably. Whereas the Central Powers their adversaries were using a lot more technology and a lot more new tactics and methods of warfare. Mm -hmm. These included um, novel approaches to war, such as poison gas Mm -hmm. and zeppelins, which were all pretty much introduced in World War I, which I didn't know. I didn't know that zeppelins were being used to bomb people in World War I. They were. I thought they were just used for uh, a method of transportation, so I learned something. Yeah, and they were also used as a a means of discouraging strafing by planes. So uh, they would have these Zeppelins anchored to the ground with these steel cables. Uh So if it it created obstacles to protect soldiers from being strafed by aircraft. That's great. So these blimps were just, Zeppelins were just floating there and they couldn't fly through them. Yeah. World War One is riddled with major, major, major technical advancements and tactical advancements. And mostly apparently by the Germans. Initially. Yeah, the Germans were. So Britain apparently wasn't ready for this these new tactics, the way that the Germans were adapting and fighting. They just weren't prepared. And so the military leaders in Britain were desperate for new concepts and methods that they could employ to sort of mm-hmm. meet the German threat. On the seas, and this is where we're going to focus tonight, on the seas, Britain had come into World War I with the world's most robust, well-known, and acclaimed navy. That's right. Their navy was second to none. They had huge, huge ships mm-hmm. with tons of firepower. And these ships were behemoths. When mm-hmm. I saw pictures and designs of some of them, I was like, wow. But the problem was a lot of them were old and aging and not in any way technically advanced. 
the Germans, wise engineering folk that they are, decided to put a lot of their resources into developing a new technology, which was the undersea boat or the U-boat, as they're commonly known. Did you know I didn't know what U-boat stood for until this week? Undersea boat. I'm a World War I, World War II nerd. So the U-boats. When the war had started, Britain had 80 operational submarines at the start of World War I. Germany had 24. But the interesting thing about this is Britain was not that into using submarines. They viewed them as cowardly and underhanded way of fighting. Mm -hmm. And the British Navy really only built them because they felt that they had to in order to appear to compete and, and to appear strong. Yeah, they didn't see a lot of value in them. Yeah, and that's why, the, and so they didn't focus on them. They weren't an important um, tool for them. And another mistake that the British did was they tried to make submarines work as a component of their fleets. And Germany did the opposite. Their submarines operated as solo units. And this made them way more effective. So as the war started to unfold, German submarines were kicking Britain's asses. Mm -hmm. For example, September 22nd, 1914, um, I read this statistic. The 7th Cruiser Squadron, British 7th Squadron, cruiser squadron encountered a German submarine U-9 in the North Sea. The submarine took three cruisers down and killed 1,450 sailors in that encounter and sailed away unscathed. Especially in the early going, the Germans had a field day with British convoys. Very smart warfaring people and very famous engineers, right? Yeah, and what's interesting is that technology, though, is also what helped signal their demise, because it was a U-boat, and if I'm stepping over your story, you, you well, we'll be. Out. I know we're, we'll be getting to where you're going. I think the Germans ended up sinking a ship, a very famous ship, the Lusitania, which I was just about to mention. So the following year, the civilian cruise ship, the Lusitania, is sunk by submarine U-20 off the coast of Ireland, and at that encounter, 1,198 people lost their lives, the majority of which were civilians. At that point in the war, German U-boats were almost unstoppable. And at their peak, the German fleet consisted of a staggering 142 operating submarines. Can you imagine trying to keep track of 142 submarines? You couldn't. It was wild. Let's talk about a very specific submarine. In August of 1917, UB, or undersea boat 65 was put into operation and her purpose her sole purpose was to navigate and operate close to the shoreline her capacity was she could carry 10 torpedoes active torpedoes but before she ever set sail she already had gained a reputation in the german navy as being a cursed vessel she was constructed in the Vulcan shipyards in Hamburg. I love that. The Vulcan shipyards. Mm-hmm. They sound so so classical and dark. I can just picture it. It's a big building with a big V and an eagle. And and clad the building is clad in leather. Yes. I'm gonna open a club called the Vulcan. Anyway, there were a suspicious number of accidents associated with the construction of UB-65. When the keel of the submarine was being laid, two dock workers were crushed by a falling girder. This is a terrible story. One was killed instantly, but the other one was trapped under the girder for two hours while they tried to free him, but he eventually died of his injuries. Yeah, that's terrible. So according to accounts, he screamed and begged for his life for the whole two hours before he died. That's terrible. 
When the submarine's engine was being tested for the very first time, three engineers couldn't be found when the process had been completed. After a thorough search of UB-65, they were all found dead in the motor room, and they had died of asphyxiation from diesel exhaust that was mm -hmm. leaking from the engine. Mm -hmm. So those were two big accidents that occurred when the submarine finally left the shipyards. One of the lookouts was washed overboard during her first test run mm -hmm. and never seen again. He was pulled below the waves and disappeared. It, it, it's a it was probably the most dangerous vessel you could work on, even though they were deadly themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, was this sort of considered exceptional? Like what was happening? Yes, very much so. Yeah, it, it rumors spread like fire. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So even by their standards, this was like, wow. Oh, yeah, because they were very efficient and very good at building submarines by then. Right. This shouldn't have been happening. They knew what they were doing. The vessel's curse also seemed to have an impact on her mechanical um, systems as well. On one test run, the ballast tank didn't function the way it was supposed to, and the ship, the submarine, actually sank to the bottom of the ocean mm. and just rested on the ocean floor, and it took the desperate crew 12 hours to get the ship back to the surface. Wow. Well, they were lucky to, that it wasn't a depth that the, yeah, I mean, if it had gone too deep, they would yeah, have Yeah, see, crushed. the lucky thing about this vessel is it operates close to the shore, so it's right, never right. in, like, Mariana Trench kind of circumstances right. on another test run another gas leak killed two more of the sailors a gas leak so the engine like the diesel engines were leaking yeah wow so by that time word was everywhere in the german navy that the vessel was cursed but the um submarine was finally ready to sort of hit the road and a young captain named martin shell was assigned to the vessel it's s-c-h-e-l-l-e it might be Shella, but I'm just going to say Shell. The Allies at that point had begun to adapt to the U-boat threat by developing methods of their own, and I mentioned this earlier, depth charges and Q-ships. I didn't know what Q-ships were, so I had to go and do some sub-research. And Q-ships, fascinating. It's so smart. They took merchant marine vessels, which looked like uh, just normal ships, made them heavily armed, and they were designed to look like merchant ships, and their purpose was to lure a submarine into attacking them. And then once the submarine did, thinking that they were a defenseless boat, they would just open fire and crucify the U-boat. So the British, the British were getting smart. War is so fascinating, right? And I mean this in a broad sense. Some of the greatest technological achievements or tactical achievements come at the hands of war. And uh, that's one of the things the British were forced to do was, was rethink their tactics. You saw that at sea, but also at, on land as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They mentioned that in a lot of these articles. So there are uh, Q-ships or Q-boats. Never heard of this. Uh, so there you go. We've all learned something, I'm sure. So the night before UB-65's maiden voyage, um, a bunch of sailors were loading... Are they, is this... Are they... Are they affiliated with UB-40? Do you know, I didn't know until I was doing this, that UB-40 must actually stand for U-Boat 40. I can't, though. But why would you name a band that? But they're not German. No, and they're awful. I hate UB-40. It's like weird weird white reggae. Well, no, only the lead singer's white. Oh, really? But that's that, it's that horrible Red Red Wine song. First dance ever with a girl at a school dance. Was, was Red, 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 It's a terrible song. I don't Rating. understand why it was ever a hit. Fuck, I hate it. All right. Uh, so the night before UB-65's maiden voyage, I was saying a group of sailors were loading torpedoes into the torpedo 
bays, one goes off. Mm. So five of the sailors sustained serious injuries, including the submarine's second officer. And this guy, remember this name, Lieutenant Richter. Okay, he's okay. hurt very badly. He Sorry, let, this happens in the boat? In the boat. And they don't die? They sustained serious injuries. He later died from the injuries he sustained because the torpedo was already in the, the, the torpedo bay. So the blast was somewhat contained and it was the ship was damaged. It took them uh, two weeks to fix it. So mm-hmm. it was heavily damaged. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, I think three of the others died, but he died. So second officer, Lieutenant Richter, important name. So again, I said uh, it took them two weeks to repair the ship and they had to replace the crew members as well. October 1917, UB-65 finally sets sail on her maiden voyage and she heads out to the turbulent North Sea. Hold on a second. This is all before her maiden voyage. Everything yeah. you told us is... Nothing. Wow. She's, not in, she's not in service. She's not in active service yet. Okay. So on her first mission, she does really well and sinks five enemy vessels. Everything is going her way for a while, and people slowly begin to forget about all the unfortunate events that had plagued her during her construction and trial run period. One night, the captain, Captain Shell, is informed that there is a situation on deck. So he uh, leaves his cabin and goes to the conning tower. That's the tower that sticks up for people who don't know. And he finds the lookout, who is supposed to be in the tower, on the floor, shaking and terrified. The lookout explains that he had been up in the tower when he saw a strange figure standing motionless on the submarine's bow, staring straight ahead into the turbulent ocean. The figure was dressed like an officer wearing a great coat, which is the long coat, Mm -hmm. and a cap. The lookout at that point calls out to the figure, who then turns around, and to his horror, it's the dead Lieutenant Richter, the one who had died in the torpedo accident. The figure then abruptly vanishes. The lookout is completely freaked out. But the captain, being stoic and a captain, he's a leader, dismisses the tale, and he actually accuses the lookout of being drunk. Okay, that being said, news of the incident spreads through the ship like fire, and the crew immediately become uneasy. So, go forward in time two days. Sudden screams are heard coming out of the control room. It's early in the morning. Now, the boat had been on the surface of the ocean for most of the previous evening, and the morning lookout had climbed up into the conning tower to perform a visual check before the boat submerged. This always had to be done. The lookout would go up, and he would visually inspect the top of the boat before they would dive. At that moment, he suddenly feels a tap on his shoulder, and he turns to find the dead lieutenant standing directly behind him and grinning. He screams, loses his footing on the ladder, falls down straight into the control room, and breaks his leg. Wow. Two of the crew members who rush to his aid swear that they also saw the lieutenant staring down at them from the hatch above. So this is dead Lieutenant Richter. And this is documented? This, was do- this is actually documented in military records. The supernatural events plaguing UB-65 start to increase over time, and they also increase in intensity. And Captain Shell, who had vowed to keep the ship free from silly superstitions, can't help at this point but feel concerned and worried. Mm -hmm. So, two engineers are working one evening when they look up to see the ghostly figure of the lieutenant standing directly behind them. The apparition checks a control panel 
before nodding and walking straight through a solid bulkhead. So another appearance of dead Lieutenant Richter. At this point, too, the submarine is having little to no success on its missions. It has sunk no further enemy ships. The crews become restless. They're frightened. And many more of them continue to see the ghostly figure moving through the ship and vanishing through walls. Once the submarine is back at port, one of the crew members is killed on land during an air raid. And his ghost after that is also seen roaming the vessel routinely. So at this point, the crew does not want to be on UB-65 at all. They believe the ship is cursed and doomed. Well, and they're, they're a very superstitious lot too, are they not, sailors? Sailors are notorious. They have so many superstitions and uh, they're not happy. They don't want to be on that ship. So the captain at this point, Captain Shell, he's at wit's end. So he contacts the, um, his, his leaders and requests a new crew. Wow. So the vessel heads for home again after completing its second patrol. And on the journey home, one of the torpedo men looks up to see the dead second officer. This is not Lieutenant Richter. This is the guy who died before the vessel had even sailed. Right. Okay. Walk right past him through the hall. The crewman freaks out. And I love this image. I could just, I'd love to see you play this character. The crewman freaks out and runs screaming through the entire boat. He climbs the, they're on the surface. He climbs the conning tower ladder, opens the hatch and throws himself into the sea in terror. So the captain and several other crew members rush to help him, but the sailor has drifted too far from the ship for them to even reach. As he's pulled below the waves, the captain turns to see the figure of dead Lieutenant Richter standing and staring back at him before the figure abruptly disappears. Well, why would the, the, these entities be upset with the crew? I don't think they're upset with the crew. I just think they're stuck. Right. And it's freaking everyone out. Why the hell did that guy throw himself into the water? He was terrified. Wow. He was absolutely terrified. One time when I was a kid... I thought a wolf was chasing me and I ran right into a gravestone. What the hell were you doing? Okay, at night? No, during the day. Why were you in a, in a cemetery? Because the cemetery was a block from my house. Well, why were you in a cemetery? We were playing there. You're, okay. Well, that explains everything. Oh, come on. Kids play in cemeteries. I stayed the hell out of the cemeteries. I had one down at the end of my street and I didn't go in it. Did you really? Yep. Well, we played in the cemetery. Besides which, it was a famous cemetery. Like Hawthorne was there. Thoreau was there. Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women. Oh, it's that one. It's Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. Really? Yeah. It's called Sleepy Hollow. It's not the... No, there's the Sleepy Hollows in New York. Ichabod's. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the captain now has become somewhat of a believer. So he makes a report. He requests, again, a new crew. And this absolutely infuriates the German Naval Command. However, testimony by his junior officers and the crew back up the captain's accounts. So the commander of the Flanders submarine fleet, which the submarine, the UB-65, is a component of that fleet, feel compelled to launch an investigation. They do. I love this part. And in order to halt the rumors and superstition and make everybody feel better, they order an exorcism. Just like that. No way. Way. Yeah, so, so the Luth- Catholic Church got involved. No, oh, that's right. It's there would have been more. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. a Lutheran pastor performs an exorcism on the boat. They do those. Yeah, I didn't think the the like Protestants were into it. Wow. And in keeping with Captain Shell's request, most of the crew are replaced. 
So the vessel's been cleansed with an exorcism and the crew are all gone. So at that point, two successful patrols occur without any incident. But the ghostly sightings still persist. Now, by now, the whole German Navy has heard of UB-65. So here we are. We're at July the 10th, 1918. A United States submarine is racing to assist a downed Portuguese freighter. That submarine suddenly stumbles upon UB-65 sitting in the ocean, motionless, just sitting there floating. The commander of that U.S. sub, he's a man named Grant, is just about to order the crew to open fire and sink the German submarine when, through his binoculars, he notices that the vessel is already listing badly to one side. He can also see a lone officer standing on the deck of UB-65, wearing a long coat and a cap, staring out over the waves. At that point, UB-65 then shudders abruptly and violently as if she has been struck by a torpedo or there has been an internal explosion. The submarine sinks beneath the waves and disappears. That U.S. sub does a thorough search for survivors. There are none. Mm. UB-65 had sunk, taking with her 37 crew members who all perished. Mm. There was no explanation for why she was sitting there or what had happened. Was she ever recovered? You're always one step ahead of me, Dan. In 2004, the wreck of UB-65 is finally located by a British documentary crew. The vessel is inspected by divers, one of which is a renowned nautical historian named Dr. Innes McCarthy. That is just so British, that name. I'm Dr. Innes McCarthy. As we look over the submarine, we can notice the the beautiful rivets, which remind me of my lovely wife, Alice. I would would think more as, well, hello, 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 hello. I'm Innes McCarthy, Mary Poppins. Welcome to me sub. Yeah, he's he's a big soak. McCarthy can find no sign of damage to the boat or any evidence that she had been sunk by any enemy activity or interference. All of the aft hatches are open, which would indicate that the crew had attempted to escape. Mm. And this would be responsible for the fact that the boat sank so quickly. So they were like maybe desperately trying to get out. Yeah. To this day... The mystery of UB-65 is one of the greatest military paranormal uh, events to ever occur. And no one knows the answer to the mystery. And that, Dan, is my rather succinct history of UB-65. It was written off by the German Navy as having sunk, having been destroyed. And that was the end of that. So no sign that like there was a malfunction perhaps with another torpedo like... There was no there was no holes in the in the boat at all. That is strange. Now there's a lot of speculation. There's thoughts that somebody let the water in. Right. And again, if they were superstitious and they thought they saw something, they were jumpy, they were sleep deprived, they were those U-boat uh, sailors were in probably the most stressful, unnatural set of circumstances. Would you fucking right, go in a U-boat? Would you go in? Never. I wouldn't even go in one for like a half hour ride to see what it felt like. I don't have any... It's so claustrophobic and horrible. They have no windows. Yeah, that's right. So it's not even like those those uh, boats that went down, for example, to look at the Titanic and stuff. Those deep-sea yeah. uh, vehicles now. At least there's windows. But even then, I wouldn't get into those. No, I think we've talked about this before. I think that if I had to choose my theater of war, I would have chosen to be on land. 
Mm-hmm. My issue with both the sea and the air is that you are completely dependent on a vehicle to keep you alive. And at the sea, I'm sorry, but like the thought of bobbing, uh, you know, sharks or drowning. Well, in the North Sea, you'd, you'd, you'd die from ex- hypothermia. Instantly. I was traumatized by, as a kid, not traumatized, that's, that's a strong word to use, but I was terrified and fascinated by the Titanic. Well, it's a great right? story. Yeah, and just that idea of being caught in that icy water was was uh, was really scary. A topic that we may be speaking with in the future with with a friend of our show. Okay. Remember that movie? I have to tell you a funny story, really funny story. Very quick story. So I go to see that movie with my friend. With my friend Leslie, we went to see the, that movie Titanic. And Leslie is a very intelligent, very cynical woman. And about two hours into the movie, she just looked at the screen and just yells at the top of her lungs in the completely quiet theater. Oh my fucking God, would you just sink the boat already? Because <laughs> we all hated that romance. Like we were, we just didn't care. We just wanted to see the boat fucking sink. Well, that's why I think most people, why it was such a big grossing film. It wasn't Leo and, and Kate. And you know, like, I liked it. it made me so angry, that bitch throwing that necklace. Give that necklace to like cancer research. <laughs> Take that money from that necklace and do it. No, throw it in the fucking ocean. Well, she's she's nobility. But weren't you led to believe that she was going to like dive into the ocean? I thought she was. I thought she was just going to take a header in. Of course, and she didn't. No, she throws a necklace. I wonder if there was an alternate ending where she does do that, and they had test audiences tell them, "No, no, no, don't do that." There was already too much death there at the end. Oh, it had been beautifully and romantic. And here's the other piece. Beautifully and romantic. That's English for you. Why the hell did she not get him up and on to that, whatever the frick she was floating on? Piece of wood. There was room for the two of them. Yeah, I know. I know that's an age old thing, but seriously, she could have saved him. Yeah. There was a, did you know there was a mini series about that done later by the Brits that I didn't see, but it was apparently quite good. A mini series about the Titanic? Yeah, that wasn't full of cheesy romance and sketching that woman. I did like though the the CGI in that film in terms of how they how the ship sunk. Yeah, it was like great. that was really neat to see, right? How it broke. Well, because that and that was new, right? They that was a relatively new discovery that it had broken, and the the two halves were quite far apart on the ocean floor. That's right. Yeah, to be stuck in um, a can under the ocean, and and especially at that time too in the war. The British were getting quite good at hunting these things with destroyers and corvettes, uh, those two ships, as you mentioned, the depth charges, like those bombs that they could set a depth and it would go off underwater and, and, and could destroy a submarine. They were getting good with sonar, right? Being able to find where they were pinging them. Did you see, because I'm not, as I, as you know, I'm not a, a, a war person, but I found this movie entirely engaging and incredibly informative in a good way. There was a recent movie with Tom Hanks. Greyhound. Loved that movie. Yeah, and historically accurate. I loved that movie. Mm-hmm. I can't believe how on edge those people would have been. Right. On either front, I just think that if you were in a submarine, it would have been worse. Oh, yeah. Oh, right? God. Because you can't see. And if you get hit, you're dead. They're dead. Like the chances of those guys surviving a hit were not very good. Whereas if you're on a surface ship, at least you have a lifeboat. You have an opportunity. You can, at the very worst, you can 
jump into the sea mm. and and hopefully there's more time and not you know sometimes they blew up and there was no chance for that to happen but i just feel like your odds were better on the surface and oh absolutely boats. and imagine being in a boat with a ghost well and there and this is i guess where i was going with that thought is that they're under incredible pressure they're already a superstitious lot and we know that the mind can be quite powerful so i wonder if it was it just sort of became the snowball effect where they freaked themselves out mm-hmm. i'm not maybe they did see a ghost mm-hmm. i don't know i know i thought of that too it just you know the isolation isolation sickness basically right have, have you ever seen das boot yeah or das boat Toskinski's in that. Because that plays with that those themes, right? The, it would drive those guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, since you're into war stuff, um, one time um, when I was with my folks, we were driving to Florida, and we had taken a detour to go and visit an aircraft carrier. Oh, cool. And that stayed with me forever because you just have no sense until you're on one how fucking huge they are. Yeah, it's a floating city. It is. And it's so stark because it's all gray metal. Everything's painted gray. Mm -hmm. And it's just, the the space has been maximized. Like the use of space is maximized. And it's just, it's nuts how big it is. It's crazy. So if I was going to be on anything, I'd want to be on that. Oh my God. Well, and you're also then on the most protected vessel in a fleet. Uh, Sorry, everything in the fleet is centered around protecting your aircraft carrier. Because it's the most important ship now in a fleet. It used to be the battleship, you know, what mm-hmm. you were talking about with with the British. That was what they were known for. But then come World War II, everything got changed. Again, another technology, by the way, that initially there were a lot of doubters as to how effective a fighting weapon it would be. And it was the um, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and then the, the, the conflict that ensued afterwards that proved how freaking lethal these things were they became slightly less important once the ballistic missiles became mm-hmm. you know once nuclear bombs were but still as a as a, fi- a means of of having reach especially through conventional means nothing beats an aircraft carrier well aircraft carriers too uh, i get the feeling from movies i've seen and things that i've seen they were more of a world war ii big thing right they were they still are they were but they were their big war was world war ii yeah they weren't as prevalent well in the pacific in the pacific not in the um not in the european theater right but they were in they were decisive in the uh, pacific i'm sure that that aircraft carrier i saw is still there it's on the drive i think it was i'll have to figure out which one it was but it was one that was open to the public decommed obviously yeah it was really the world war ii era one yeah and you 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 could spend and and they didn't have a guide so you could just wander and you said that's in florida somewhere between here and florida (laughs) that narrows it down (laughs) it's got to be you know what i think it's in florida there's that causeway that's famous because it's the longest um, man-made causeway through all those little islands. Am I bringing any Florida Keys? No, 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 no. I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out, and I'll I'll mention it next time. Okay. Yeah. And anyway, it's somewhere around there, and it was really quite wonderful. I have a picture of myself on it, because they yeah on on the deck of it. Well, my dad does. So I always thought it would be fascinating to be on one of those on the on the sea. So that is mm-hmm. my weird story i just thought i would share that it's a short one but i thought i would share because who had ever heard of a haunted submarine no that's great i love that that was so cool and i love i love those stories that um 
it, it's not an internet rumor. No. There's actual yeah. documentation that people really were freaked out and believing this stuff and impacted by it, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know what else? Um, when I turned the stone over to research this, do you know what else I discovered? There are people out there obsessed with the battles that took place in World War I. Mm-hmm. Like obsessed they have they know every communication they knew every conversation they have every document like they this is their hobby they recreate mm-hmm. they, they can tell you every nuance of every encounter during world war one one of my favorite podcasts and i'm mentioning this podcast because i'm sure he'll hear about it and then um throw some positive energy good word our way is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. And he does a phenomenal, I think it's a six-part series on World War One. It's um, really, really well done. And gives you a pretty uh, concise uh, you know, picture of what happened, what it would have been like to... Like that, of all the wars too, by the way, that was the worst war. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know. I, that's why I don't like movies like 1917. I just don't. I don't want to know. It's like me. It's like people wanting to watch an autopsy. I don't want to watch it. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. It's probably one of the only noble things about you. <laughs> oh, you're such a prick. Um, <laughs> but I love you. But uh, yeah, it, honestly, and, and people get mad at me for that. They're like, no, it's important that you know. I know. Okay. I know. I know how atrocious we can be. Well, you know what? You bring that up. It's so I've gone to Europe three times now. I've never been to any of the, um, the, the death camps like Auschwitz or, uh, uh, Birkenau or any of those. And I don't want to go. I know. I, a part of me does though, as a way of, I know, I know what you're saying, but a part of me feels that I should go if I was there to, to be able to, to witness and, and, you know, nothing breaks my heart. And actually getting emotional thinking about it now. Nothing breaks my heart or spirit more than that story. Well, the worst. Um, that we could be mm-hmm. that awful. Mm-hmm. And we could be that intolerant and that filled with hate. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like to think about it because it makes me very sad for humanity. And the fact that it happened, my father was alive when this was happening. Like it's not that distant history. It's not back in Roman days when, you know, and we're not far from being able to do it again. Oh, fuck. I just right. wish we could be a better society sometimes, you know, and just this, just treating people that way. What the fuck? What gives you the God? I don't want to get worked up about it, but. No, so I went to uh, the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which if anyone has never been, I highly recommend it. I believe there is one in New I know there's one in New York and also Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, Canada. But they have this Holocaust exhibit and you get a card and you are uh, following a child that actually went through the Holocaust. And some of these children don't make it through the entire exhibit oh. because you're going through time as you go through. right. That was quite powerful and poignant. And, and you, at one point, you're sitting in a replica of a gas chamber. What? And oh. you're sitting in a replica of what a gas chamber. And it, it, it's terrifying. Oh. The, that coupled with then, f- at that time, there were I was able to listen to some firsthand uh, accounts from Holocaust survivors and hearing their stories. One of one of them, uh, not from the, the the museum experience, but here in um, in Ottawa. I got to listen and also read Eva Olson's 
book about her survival of the Holocaust. Horrible stuff and uh, very powerful. I, I'm like you. I take it really strongly. I just think I would be too upset. I think I would find it too overwhelming mm-hmm. going there. The the pain and suffering and talk about negative energy. Yeah. Right? Like I just, and it's not because I'd be afraid. I just don't, I don't think I need to do it to fully appreciate and have empathy and to have learned the lesson that that part of our history can teach us, which is you fucking treat people with love and dignity, regardless of where they're from or what they look like or what religious beliefs they might have or whatever. We're all human beings. Yeah. My God. And we still have so much to learn in that regard. We do. Yeah. Okay. That is my story for the week. I've got nothing else. As I said, it was found in 2004, and that's it. That's all she wrote. Thank you, Riley. I enjoyed that story very much. Thanks for getting, giving me something that uh, you knew that I would like. You're a good friend. <laughs> well, when I stumbled across the story, I'm like, oh, Dan's going to love this. It's I like all your stories. Military history. But that was cool. Yeah, military yeah. history. So, Dan... Um, I got nothing else to to add to the conversation. I'm sorry, folks, we rambled a lot this week, but that's the way life is. That's just the way the weird rolls, Riley. And I think if uh, we, you know, anyone who's listened to this show (laughs) knows that's part of what they're getting is our, uh, well, as one uh, commenter said uh, this week, uh, transgenital, transgenital. No, not trans. Don't say transgenital. I got to take that out. Transgenital. Yeah, I don't. I didn't mean, I actually realized as I said Just say it. one listener, just a listener. No, but they said, I sent you the text you too did, of what they do said. Do we have to say his, it's not even a real name. No, that wasn't their name. They were calling us, hold on, I'm going to tell you, tangential, ten, the fact that we go off on. Tangential, on, tangential, like a tangent. That's what I was trying to say. Not transgenital. So you say it because I'm not going to remember it. So I'm going to we'll repeat this because you're going to take that out. Tangential. Yes. So we had one viewer, Riley, who said we were, what is it? Tangential. Yes. And they're bang on. I loved uh, that comment and they enjoyed it. They liked our little, but that's, that's, uh, I think, um, I'm, well, I hope people like listening. We see a pretty, we see a pretty color in the woods and we chase it. There we go. There we go. Okay. Enough said. Uh, That was episode uh, 23. And I just wanted to say to the, to, uh, to the weirds listeners, Folks, remember the 25th episode, uh, to celebrate our 25th episode, we're doing a two-parter. So 25 and 26 are going to be part one and two of the great story of Area 51, one of the biggest, most famous UFO events in world history. Ma. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, dear listener, we will see you uh, next week for further tales from the weird. Goodbye, Dan. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye, Riley. Okay, there. Uh, all right, uh, you gotta throw this ball in this basket, and if you can do that, there, uh, sweetie, uh, you get a bandaid. <laughs> <laughs>